must be out of your goddamn mind. Joe Lewis, the greatest boxer ever lived. I'll be with you boys in a minute. He was bad in Captain Clay. He bad in Sugar Ray. He bad in that. Who that? You, the new boy he got. Mike, Mike Tyson looked like a bulldog. He bad in him too. He done whipped Mike Tyson's ass. He whipped all their asses. What about Rocky Marciano? Oh, there they go. There they go. Every time I start talking about boxing, a white man got to pull Rocky Marciano out their ass. That's the one. That's the one. Rocky Marciano. Rocky Marciano. Let me tell you something wonderful. Rocky Marciano was good. But compared to Joe Lewis, Rocky Marciano ain't shit. He bit Joe Lewis's ass. That's right. He did whoop Joe Lewis's ass. Joe Lewis was 75 years old when they fought. I don't know how old he was, but he got his ass whooped. Joe Lewis had come out of retirement to fight Rocky Marciano. The man was 76 years old. Joe Lewis always lied about his age. He lied about his age all the time. One time, Frank Sinatra comes out here and sat down in this chair. And I said, Frank, you hang out with Joe Lewis. Just between me and you, how old is Joe Lewis? You know what Frank told me? He said, hey, Joe Lewis, 137 years old. 137 years old. Oh, man, you ain't never meet no Frank Sinatra. Fuck you. Fuck you and fuck you. Who's next? Okay, Dave, I have a question for you before I introduce you, because I want to spend some time on that. Coming to America, is it fair to say that this is one of the most quotable movies of the 80s? I mean, Lord knows you and I quoted it God knows how many times in high school, but what do you think? Absolutely. Oh, man. Certainly for you and I, we spent a good year, year and a half greeting each other with a quote from the movie. Totally uh, on board with that comment for sure. There are so many lines from this movie that you and I quoted to each other for, like you said, all throughout senior year in high school. But like, so I made a list of what other the other 80s movies that would probably qualify for that statement, right? This is what I wrote down and I'm missing stuff. I'm certain of it. 16 Candles, Breakfast Club. And I guess on that note, now that we're talking John Hughes, we probably could throw Planes, Trains in there. Um, and we could probably throw Bueller in there, but then I would say Top Gun, just because it's Top Gun, and it was one of those movies that a lot of people quoted. I've got Trading Places, yep, Beverly Hills Cop, and the last one I would throw out there for me personally is Midnight Run, which I'm a big fan of. So I remember you were, yeah, okay, right? Yeah. How does that list feel? Try that out. Does that feel good? It feels good. Yeah, you got me on the spot here. I'd say. Going a little earlier in the eighties, you gotta ha- you gotta throw Caddyshack in there. Good one. You gotta have that one in there. But no, your list is pretty darn good. Ooh, Caddyshack! I can't believe I missed that one. That's early. That's like eighty. You just got the, got the cutoff. There. Yeah, somewhere in there. All right, so I have a little surprise for you. Oh, great! I got this little guy. See that? <laughs> <laughs> so over the years, I've mentioned this on previous episodes. Over the years, my brother sends me every Christmas. He sends me one of these. I think they're called pop toys, and they're okay. they, these like these little action figures. You probably have seen them in stores. And I've I've I have a collection here that goes back probably fifteen something years. But a couple years ago, he sent me Prince Akeem in his McDowell's uniform with his little mop. Mop in the floor. Isn't that fantastic? While you're showing off souvenirs uh, of coming to America theme and vintage. Oh my goodness. Look at that. You are wearing a McDowell's t-shirt. I love it. Home of the big Mick. 
Home of the Big Nick. <laughs> 8507 Queens Boulevard. Queens Boulevard. I love that you were in that for tonight. I actually, I referenced this. I was going to reference this a little bit later, but I've got a McDowell's t-shirt as well. It would have been pretty awesome if I wore that tonight. I never even thought about it. Last weekend, you texted me, I guess it was like a week ago, maybe longer. You texted me on a Sunday morning with a little treat and you sent me that music piece that we just played, which is you on the guitar playing the theme of soul glow which is one of the one of the big products that's referenced in this movie tell me about that how did that come about when did you decide to do that how long did it take sure oh yeah it it probably it came to mind about a week or two ago i figured oh that would be kind of funny if i if i could do that and i just got sidetracked and then as you said sunday morning i woke up and i knew this was coming up so i said uh you know what let's just put something together and, and see how it comes out. So that took me about 15 minutes. Um, you know, I, I did the rhythm guitar, the, the the lead guitar. I put a little bass in there. The hardest part, Dennis, was was trying to find the drum beat um, and then slow it down to try to get to the right beats per minute. And again, I was guessing, but I didn't want to spend a lot of time on a Sunday morning. So yeah, that was about 15 minutes worth of work. I can't believe that you did that just for this podcast. Dave, I'm like really grateful. I will give you like props. That is the first piece of original creative music content, anything that anybody on this show for two years that I've been doing it has done for an episode. You're the first wow. one that's delivered like new material for me to feature. Um, so you get like gold medal for that more than gold. That's really impressive. So well, I'm going to go for another gold medal here in a minute. Um, <laughs> I have an idea for you. Okay. Are you interested in a theme song? Of this podcast? For your podcast. Wow. I'm putting myself on the spot. I probably should have done this offline and not recorded, but I'm going to put the pressure on myself. I might have something that could work. Again, I'll send it to you and you see what you think. Um, I'm very excited about this. I mean, because what I normally do, it depends on how I want to structure the episode. Like some episodes like this one, I start off with a clip from a film. Um, Others, I do like a cold open of me speaking. So it sort of depends on how I want to frame the conversation. But what I normally like to do is wrap up the episode with a little piece of something, whether it be music Uh or but like what I'm thinking, and again, let's 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 talk more about it. But maybe we can do like what you're what you're thinking. Maybe that's like the outro. Outro. There you go. Or something like that. So that will be my signature goodbye music going forward, where I, I feature Dave O'Sullivan original. I am very intrigued by this. Very now. Now, of course, if if it never makes the podcast, everybody will know it was a piece of crap and uh, and you hated it. So. Well, obviously that's not going to happen because now that we've, no, um, there's too much excitement about this. So the answer is yes. Uh, do you already have it done? Or are you still like in the idea phase? Uh, so I had come up with something about six months ago. It was going to be a, a new song for the band. Um, and I'll give a shameless plug to my band in a minute here, but uh, yep. I had come up with something, no lyrics to it, but it was just kind of a cool, catchy riff idea. And, and we played it once or twice as a band Um and then just for one reason or another, just have never gotten to putting anything to it. So I figured, well, hell, if we're not going to use it, I, I think I got a, I think I got somebody who'll need it, who can use it. So that's, that's where it's going to come from. That's incredible. Thank you. Uh, let's talk more about it. Cool. Um, you've got my attention. So let me, let me officially introduce you finally after seven minutes. Uh, David <laughs> O'Sullivan. I've known David O'Sullivan since, I don't know how long, Dave, since I was probably 16. I want to uh, say. Yeah. Yeah, probably sophomore year, high school, junior year, sophomore somewhere. Sophomore year. 
Yep. And uh, we graduated together. We worked together, which we're going to get into in a little bit. Um, you're, you're calling in from Newtown, Connecticut. One of the things I love most about this podcast is that, and I've done this with numerous guests through the years, I, I try to bring on people that I, you know, somebody that obviously I have a personal connection with, but somebody that I either maybe haven't even talked to in quite a while. This podcast is a great way for us to kind of reconnect with people that maybe it's it's been too long since we've spoken. And you and I, which we're going to talk about in a minute, when the last time that we probably saw each other or talked to each other. But um, this episode has been on my my calendar for the better part of the year now, because I remember what I like to do when I'm figuring out which movies I want to choose. Obviously, it's a movie that must be special to me in, in numerous ways, but I also try to do anniversary years, and it doesn't always break that way. Sometimes I, I miss it by a year, but I always try to do an anniversary year, which is what Coming to America is. And right now, it came out 35 years ago. We're coming in right on the heels of the anniversary. So but there's only one person in the world that I would ever want to talk to about Coming to America, and it's you. So, uh, And that says so much about what this movie meant to the two of us in the summer of 88. Oh, man, absolutely. If if there's two things I would think of, if somebody said coming to America, I would think Eddie Murphy and Dennis Kalman. That's it. Those are the two things that would pop to mind. So I appreciate you inviting me, man. Tell us about yourself, Dave O'Sullivan. What do we need to know? Sure. So for anybody who cares, um, after spending my youth working in a movie theater with uh, with you, along with other great friends, selling popcorn and filling up soda cups for you know the better part of I don't know probably four years. Late 80s, early 90s, I uh, I went and got a finance degree, and I've spent the better part of almost 30 years in the in the finance industry. So, not not as glamorous or as dangerous as working in a movie theater and spraying oven off into a hot popcorn kettle and almost asphyxiating the entire <laughs> the entire movie going audience in a particular night. But uh, it pays the bills. So yeah, I'm uh, I'm in finance and I'm living in Connecticut. In Newtown, I've been here for about the last 20 years or so. It looks like you're calling in from our, your little private movie theater you've got tonight, which I'm very jealous of. Well, yeah, I, it's one of those things, Dennis. You know, when you're a kid, you have big dreams and, you know, you're going to do this in your life. Or you're going to have that. One thing I always said I was going to have was a, a, a theater room in my house. And it, it took me – this is my third house – but I finally have achieved it. So yeah, I've been in here since about 2014 and it was the first thing I put in. I can't believe I don't have one. My brother has one. He moved into a house a year ago and he finally has his movie theater as well. We were talking about this the other day um, when we were prepping for this. When did we last see each other? So you're thinking it was like 98, 99, something like that? Yeah. So um, I, I know it's funny you had mentioned, you know, the last time I think it was, I was at your wedding, you were saying to me and I'm like, no, you were in my wedding. <laughs> I was in your wedding. I think that might have been like the very first wedding I was in as an adult besides my sister. That's right. I'm like, no, you weren't just at it. You were a participant. And that was like um, 90, 94, I want to say? Uh, 95. And so after that, I think we saw each other a handful of times. But uh, I mean, you were pretty much not really around the area much after that. I bounced around East Coast quite a bit. I was yeah. in Atlanta for a while. I was in DC yeah. for a while. So it wasn't in your area too long. Unfortunately, yeah. so so no, it's probably been the better part of twenty five years since I've laid eyes on you, man. So listen, there's two things I want to get in before we uh, we jump into why we're here tonight. But one of them is I had I had to mention this. One of my fondest memories of you, and there are obviously many, and some of them we're going to talk about in a second. But like it was, I guess this would have been the summer. It could be the summer of '88, which we're about to revisit, or maybe sooner. But you and I and Burgess driving around in your white Hyundai 
probably at what I would call very excessive speeds through the streets of Danbury. Do you feel like that's a, a fair assessment? Uh, yeah, it's a fair assessment. And the note I wrote down here, uh, you know, there may or may not have been fireworks involved. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, I don't know what the statute of limitations is in Connecticut with the shooting off of fireworks. So we won't go into any further details, but do you, re- you I assume you recall those events and those, uh, those nights, right? Yeah, that's, that sounds familiar. I wouldn't have gone fireworks until you just said it, but now that you say <laughs> it, I believe it. And I also felt like the soundtrack was always Def Leppard, wasn't it? Certainly. Yeah. I mean, that, that was definitely, you know, the, the heyday of the, the hair bands, poison, Def Leppard. And, and I even hate to say Def Leppard is a hair band. They would, they would hit me over the head with a guitar for saying that. But but yes, it was that kind of uh, hard rock, hair metal stuff that was very popular at the time. And yeah, I was a sucker for it, man. Absolutely. Well, a lot of us that were in that class were as well. So I don't think you were alone. So on the music note, before I let you go on this point, tell me how the band came about. When did you start playing? Like, when did you start getting the itch for it? I mean, I'm wondering, is like you in a rock band, you and I are the same age, is you in a rock band sort of the equivalent of me doing a podcast? Meaning like we all have that itch, right? Uh, That's probably a a great analogy, Dennis. Yeah, it's sort of that creative outlet. Um, What's funny about it is, so for my first wedding anniversary, um, uh, my wife, it might've been our first Christmas. I take that back. So I was married in September our first Christmas, my wife gives me a gift and I open it and it was um, music lessons. Now, I had never picked up a guitar in my life, but to your earlier comment, I love music. I was, I, I, I just never, it never entered my mind that you could learn an instrument. I just thought that was something you, you, you did or you didn't do and I didn't do it. So anyway, Sue got me guitar lessons and I remember looking like, huh, okay. I go, why did you get me these? I wasn't dismissive. I just was like, how did you know? And she goes, all you do is talk about music. I go, I do. She goes nonstop. I go, Oh, I go. And you can just take lessons. And she goes, yeah. I go, cool. Anyway, that was 20 something years ago and she's regretted it ever since. (laughs) Did you just do the lessons and like, Oh, that was fun. But like, did it like incite something inside you that you're like, no, this is something I want to start doing as a hobby. Yeah, no, I, I was bitten immediately. Um, but, but I, but I wasn't aware of the amount of time and effort something like that requires. So I played every night. Um, but I, I was married. I had started a new job and then shortly thereafter our first son was born. So free time was a scarcity but I always made time to practice. So I was practicing Dennis maybe a half an hour a night. And I'm thinking, man, I'm practicing a lot. I'm going to be Eddie Van Halen in a year. And after <laughs> a year, I, I still can't play a damn thing. So uh, I never put it down, um, but it was definitely hard to find that time. But now the kids are grown. My my years of coaching youth sports you know, are, are behind me. Yeah. Um, and then COVID hit, unfortunately. But the only damn good thing that came out of that was I got to I had nothing else to do. I couldn't leave the house. I couldn't see anybody. So I, I just uh, just played more guitar. So the band's been around for a while, probably, gosh, in some form or another 10, 15 years. Okay. Um, and shameless plug time. The Basement Kings out of Newtown, Connecticut are playing September 16th. It's a Saturday at 3 to 6 p.m. at New Asylum Brewery in Newtown, Connecticut. So come on down and hear some live music if you're in the area. 
I love it. My only thing I'm annoyed about is that I'm not going to be in, in Connecticut. I'm going to be out there in mid August. Um, which I, so you and I need to talk about that, but, um, but how often are you guys playing? Like, are you playing regularly or is it just like every, every couple months? Yeah, no, it's, it's very occasional. Um, you know, we're we're not, we're not out there as a gigging band, if you will. We're not trying to, to book gigs. We could, um, but it's still a matter of coordinating all the band members times and schedule and, you know, one guy still got a, a younger ish child and one guy runs his own business. So he's got to manage that more importantly than, you know, goofing around with a middle-aged rock band. So yep. it's just, uh, it's priorities, but I still have visions of, of playing out more often. So you have my respect. I mean, I, I, again, going back to the podcast, I have a very similar feeling with that. It, it, people always ask me, aren't you, why don't you do more episodes? And I'm like, look, I would love to do more episodes. It's a ton of fun. But to your point, like you've got life, you've got your job, sure. you've got other things. And it's just really, there's more work that goes into it than people realize. And it's just hard to find the time. It's not a good excuse, but it's the reality. It's just, it's hard to, you know, something like that. If, if someone wanted to pay me to have this be my, my full-time job, then let's, let's have that conversation. But a hundred percent. Yeah. You'd crush it. Yeah. Otherwise that's just a, a once a month hobby, but all right. So look, the centerpiece to our friendship, you referenced this earlier is that you and I work together. At, at the time, it was called the Translux Cine, which was a very highfalutin word. It was a three-screen theater. Anybody that's that's listening today that's in the Bethel, Danbury area knows exactly what theater we're talking about. It's no longer there. Um, but I, get the, I guess at the time, and I don't know how long the Cine was there. I don't know when it started. But um, it was in place when we moved to Connecticut, and that was in 81. So I know that it was already there at that point. But um, it was considered, I think, to be one of the probably the best of the four that were there at the time, right? So if you look at the greater Danbury Brookfield, there was the, there was the cine, which is where you and I worked. There was the cinema, which I believe was on North street, two screens. There was the Danbury palace, which was on main street, which was kind of a shithole, <laughs> which we're going to talk about. Cause there were some great films that played at the palace through the years, including Die Hard. And then there was the, the, the one in Brookfield, which was the fine arts, which was not part of our, Translux family. So it always caused complications whenever we wanted to go see a movie there. Managers had to call other managers and there was yep. passwords and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> Secret handshakes. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember the cine it was sort of like, I guess what I would say about it is it had like this art deco kind of design to it. You remember like there was like a whole wall of like exposed rock and like it had like poster cases built into the rock wall and it had like a weird carpeting and it was a lot of blues and golds but like i think at the time it was probably ahead of its time and now i would say like it would probably would have been a really good indie theater now if something like that opened today it wouldn't be something anybody would go see like a big marvel movie at but i think it would be something you would go see like an indie house film don't you think absolutely and you just transported me back to that lobby circa 1988 yes the exposed rock if you remember over the water fountain there was this <laughs> this uh, metal art feature. Remember the side? It was like bent wire or metal or something. Do you remember that damn thing? Yep. So let's talk about how the Cine era of our life started. Because I mean, and I, I'll mention this again a little bit later. But one of the one of the most like enjoyable times of my life. I sincerely mean this. Like I I worked there from eighty seven um, in high school through probably. You know, even like post college, right after post college, I probably worked there in the summers a little bit just to make a couple extra bucks, maybe five or six years total. I would say I was through there, maybe longer. But um, 
we got to give credit to Mike Burgess because he sort of started the whole chain of who all started working there. So tell us, like, t- give us your version of who started first and then who followed. I think you were close. Pretty close. So, so yes, shout out to Burgess. Hope you're listening, pal. Um, I, I love his origin story. Uh, and, and you had mentioned it sort of in prep for this. Mike got a job at the theater because in, in his wonderful ability of observation, figured – or he asked himself the question, what could employees of movie theaters possibly do once the movie starts? It's got to be a bunch of nothing. It's got to yep. be a bunch of standing around and getting paid to do nothing. So the guy goes and gets a job at a movie theater to prove his theory. And he proved it right, of course. But that <laughs> that was his origin story. To find a job where he could get paid to do nothing. That's perfectly said. I wrote down that the path to least resistance was certainly a, a life choice for Mike Burgess in 1987. So according to my research, I remember Burgess was there first, right? And then I want, this is where I get a little confused. Were you second or is Brad Gorley second? God, it, it's all blur. I gotta, I gotta say I was next. Um, but uh, to further on the Mike story, um, he did definitely start to get all of his buddies there. Um, and it, and it wasn't all, uh, altruistic on his part. Hey, my buddies need a job. Let's get them in here. Um, it was all based on seniority, how, how fast you moved up the ranks yep. specifically out of the candy stand into being an usher. And so he got all of us to follow him because that just made him higher up on the seniority level ladder. So, uh, Yes, me, you, Brad, Rapella. We were definitely the OG, I would say. Yep. So I remember like, because Burgess and I sat next to each other in homeroom because they always did it alphabetically, right? So BU, Burgess yep. always sat right in front of me. And then I was right right at the start of, of the C's. And I remember he'd be like, Denny, Denny, you got to get a job at this theater. I'm like, look, I'm in. It's my dad. I got to talk to Raji. Raji was like, didn't, was not a fan of me working yep. during the school year. Scholastic excellence was important to my dad. And he was like, Dennis, you start working, you know, you start getting a job during your, your grades are going to start slipping and we, we can't have that. So like it took Burgess a little bit. He's like, you, he's like, you want me to talk to your dad? I'm like, I don't think you need to talk to Raji. Let me, let me handle the Raji talk. So uh, ultimately, I don't know how I finally got my dad to say yes, but I, I think I went down there. He was in a good mood one night. It was after dinner. And I was like, dad, I, I got a proposition for you. I, you know, I want to start making some money. I want to start being responsible. And uh, what are your thoughts about me working at the Cine with Burgess? Like Friday, Saturday, Sunday down the street, you know, it's close. Yep. And he said he bought it. And like, so I think it was maybe like, I want to say October or November of 87, you had just started, I want to say. So I think it was like yep. Brad, Brad had just started. And I want to say I was maybe either like fourth or fifth in, but to your sure. point, Mike, Mike was selfish and he already got, because he had these people coming <laughs> in, in the pipeline, Mike got, had he, I would say he was a, he was promoted to usher on, on the accelerated track, right? <laughs> Four months, four months, that son of a bitch got out. Of, he, it only took him four months to get out of the candy stand, which was unheard of. Right. Unheard of. Because I was there, like, I want to say I worked. So let's tell, let's tell the listeners like how it starts. So basically like when you, when you come in on day one, you are absolutely working in the concession stand. So don't even think about being an usher. Don't even think about putting on the, 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 the jacket, which is what the ushers got to wear, tearing their tickets. All that stuff is like 18 months out. That was my timeline. You couldn't even make eye contact with the ushers. 
<laughs> and maybe if you were usher for like two years, then you got bumped up to the to, to the cash register at the front if you wanted to actually sell tickets, which I never really liked doing. So I was never really a fan of working in the booth, but I preferred ushering. But uh, I was 18 months behind the candy stand. Burgess was four months, as you established. You were probably somewhere in the, in the middle, maybe six, seven months. No, I was I was definitely over a year. No, no, I I, I had to pay my dues just like you. So this is what I, I wrote down about the concession stand. So this is what was so amazing about this thing is, do you remember that, it, first of all, it was all cash, right? So like there was no computers. We had no register in the candy stand. I mean, not that I'm, a, not while I was there, like maybe at the latter end, maybe they brought something in, but those first several years, there was, all there was, was this crappy wooden drawer right? That didn't even like pull out all the way if memory serves. And yeah. I just remember like on a Friday night and Saturday night, cause you know, we selling a ton of popcorn, a ton of soda, there would just be like wads of twenties just jammed into this thing. Right. They'd be like falling on the floor. They'd be getting popcorn oil on them. And like, but there was no, like, that was it. That was the structure. It was a wooden drawer with yeah. cash. Yes. You're missing one thing. It's not a big detail, but it's a detail. Nonetheless, we did have a calculator. But no self-respecting concessionaire would touch that damn thing. Hell no. Fuck that. Fuck that. You ain't touching the calculator. No way, man. If you had to touch the calculator, you're out. So tell everybody like how we how we calculated how much we sold. Tell everybody like what the methodology was. Wow, you're bringing me back. Yeah, that's right. So there was a sheet that you filled out every night, and it, and it you know down the left hand column was. All of the things, cups, small, medium, large, or soda cup, popcorn cup, and all of the candies. And you had to write down opening quantity. Exactly. How many things were in the cabinets when you got there? You'd go through your night selling all sorts of product. And at the end of the night, you had to recount everything. That was your closing total. And then opening minus closing equals sold times cost per item. And at the end of the night, if that column said you sold $910.50, you better have had $910.50 in the cash drawer. That's exactly right. And again, no computer because you're a wimp if you used any sort of calculator. So it was, we all, the best part about it, I recall, is that everything was always on the nickel as far as cost, right? So like small popcorn at the time in 87 was probably 250 or maybe 275. Small Coke was like a buck 25. It was always on the 25, right? So like Correct. you didn't have to worry about tax. You didn't have to worry. So it got right. to the point right. that you really didn't need the, the calculator because you could do the fast math. But, you know, you got you got somebody in line in July of 88 saying, I want a large a large popcorn butter at halfway with three large Cokes and a Twizzler and a Skittle. You got to do some quick math. And you got to do that while you're filling that popcorn. You are running the numbers in your head yep. and you are not grabbing any calculator. And then you would get it. Because then what happens was, to your point, Gary and Glenn would come out, right? And they would they would count the money at the end of the night. We'd all be sitting there biting our fingernails, hoping that we're not off, right? <laughs> and and some nights are off by like ten bucks. Other nights yeah. are you know you're off by fifty cents, which was a good night. But like sure. you you didn't want to be off by ten bucks because Gary would come back and be like, "Where's the rest of it? <laughs> Where's the ten bucks? I don't know. It it slid under the uh, the popcorn machine. I don't know where the hell it is." Oh my God. Um, fantastic. Wasn't it? Wasn't it fantastic? Oh man. A- absolutely. I mean, the job itself, while you were doing it, you know, Saturday night when cocktails opened up and, you know, the lines, no matter how fast you move, that line never shrinks. Those were not fun days, 
but they were great times if that makes any sense. Wasn't it a blur though? Like I remember like once, you know, once like the shit started, right? Like when you're like cooking the popcorn up and then all of a sudden you look up and you just see this pile of people that are like lined up outside buying tickets to see Patriot games. And you're like, oh my God, this is opening weekend of, of Patriot games. There's a line across the street and all these people are going to get food. And like you just like that 30 minutes between when they walk in to they get yep. their food, till they get to their seat it was just like madness, wasn't it? Absolutely. But sort of exhilarating. It was like hell because then like when everybody finally left and the movie started and then you like you look down at the floor. First of all, there's like hot oil all over your hands, right? It's all <laughs> over like your elbows. It's on your shirt, like your shoes. You're slipping on the floor. There's popcorn gut everywhere. I mean, it was like it was like a bomb exploded, right? Absolutely. And then you had to like recalibrate. You had to clean up, get everything ready to roll, and then like clean a, the counter down. You had to start making fresh popcorn again and get ready for the next set of shows at 9 o'clock. Like that was the cycle, right? And imagine if you remember on the weekends, you could do a double. So you could be there for the three shows on the matinee, go get dinner and come back and do the seven and nine. I mean, it was, oh man, it was hell. Doubles were good money, Dave. Good cash. I want to talk about that one weekend in 1988. And I know you know what I'm talking about. Uh, let me set the stage and then you can you can jump in. Gary Gary calls you and I into his office. It was like a, like a Thursday or something. He's like, look, you know, uh, this weekend, um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit was opening as long as well as um, Tom Hanks and Big, and they were both playing at the cinema on North Street, which is one of our sister theaters. We didn't work there, but you know they, they usually got good movies there. Well, we had to go over and work, and we were ushers by then. I'm pretty yeah, sure. Yeah, we were we, like, we, yeah, we were like elevated. <laughs> correct. We we had been out of the candy stand for probably a year, and uh, it was one of those. Who was willing to, you know, if you guys were willing to go over there, he'd pay us double time or triple yeah. time. I forget what it was. We, of course, said, well, hell, of course we'll go do it. It's cool to go see another theater. And when we're done, we can go check out, you know, who framed Roger Rabbit. And uh, all right, even though we got to work in the candy stand, it'll be worth, you know, the, the double time. Bad. That was a bad call on our part um, because <laughs> it was a madhouse to say the least. But yeah, go ahead. How'd we do, Dennis? I remember because we're going to reference the top five grossing films of 88 in a minute. But Who Framed Roger Rabbit was number one on the list. And that movie made a shit ton of money. So I remember that opening weekend. It was like a hellfire. Like, I mean, you and I were like back there in a candy stand. We don't even know. We don't even know where the cups are. We don't even know where the soda cups are. It's 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 like going to another major league city. It's just a little bit, you know, it's not not entirely familiar. So going back to the methodology that Dave mentioned earlier, we counted up the sheet. We got our we got our money in for the night. It was a huge haul. They 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 run the numbers. They come back out again. Two guys, different movie theater, not even working in concession anymore. We went back just to, you know, give back to the people. We were off by 10 cents that night. We fucking killed it. One thin dime. And if I remember, I want to say you reached <laughs> in your pocket and said, here's your dime or something. There, there's some memory. <laughs> no, yeah, you, you pulled out a dime and said, no, we're not. We're on. We're right on or something like that. I would say, I'm going to throw this out to you right now. I would say that if you and I did that tomorrow and we had to go work at a theater again, again, back in the time of like, all, you know, counting it in your head, no computers, no registers, all that stuff. I feel like we would be off by, I don't know, I'm going to say two bucks. What do you think? Because we can never prove it, yeah, I'll agree with you. The one last thing I want to talk about uh, about the Cine before we move on is um, a gentleman by the name of Chuck. So first of all, I had not thought of that guy in decades. I You, you brought his name up and I was like, holy crap, that's right, that, that guy Chuck. And and I remembered the whole process of, okay, who he was and what he was. So 
Um, just as, as quick setup for our audience, at the end of every night, the, the manager, Gary or Glenn, had to basically total up all the cash that was taken in. And we had a deposit in the bank. We couldn't leave that in the theater overnight. It could be, you know, five, ten thousand bucks. I don't know, but a, yep. a, a significant amount of cash. So every day there was a security guard named Chuck. Chuck had to be late seventies, early eighties. I was going to say like seventy-five, something like that. Yep. So Chuck was the hired security guard to come and and one of the ushers, the closing usher, had to accompany Chuck in his car drive about a half a mile up the road to the bank and drop the cash bag into the, you know, the night cash drop or the cash drawer or whatever. Um, so anyway, that, that's who Chuck was. But Dennis, do you remember his friend, Bill? Do you remember Bill? He had a, he kept a, a fake rodent in his back seat in a cage. Is that, was his name Bill? Or was that something else you're talking about? That was the wampus. We can talk about that later if, if we're not boring <laughs> people. No, no, Bill, Bill was... Chuck's degenerate friend. And I don't know if I can use the word degenerate. You might have to edit that out. Whatever. No, that's fine. We, we okay. can do that. <laughs> Bill, Bill was the, the, the character of question. He was the character of questionable intentions, I guess. Let's put it that way. So Dennis, one day Chuck shows up. I'm the closing usher. I got to go in the car to drop the cash. Yep. You know, I've, I've done it a hundred times. Which we should well, never have done at our age, by the way. I don't even think we were legally old enough to do that, but whatever. Well, yeah, no, no. This gets worse. So I open the door and <laughs> the seats, you get in the front seat because I guess because you had the cash bag, they had to always have eyes on the cash. So I totally get it. So I get in the front seat and there's a guy in the front seat. And I'm, I'm a little startled like, who the hell is this guy? And Chuck is like, oh, this is my friend, Bill. I'm like, okay. So Bill slides over. In the front seat. So he's sitting in the front seat. There's three of us now in the front seat. Unbelievable. Dennis, I get in the car and there's a handgun loose on the dashboard. <laughs> I shit you not. I, I get in the car. I'm 17 years old and I see a handgun. I go, oh, who's gun? And Bill picks it up, mutters something and puts the muzzle on my thigh. What? And I'm sitting, uh, Dennis, I shit, you know, I'm thinking this fun motherfucker's going to shoot me. And he mutters something. And then Chuck, Chuck tells him, I ah, put the gun down or something like that. And so Bill starts laughing, throws the gun back up on the dashboard and we drive away like nothing happened. Unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. Could you imagine something like that happening today? No. I mean, I, I was thinking about Chuck when I was writing, when I wrote this down for this episode, I was like, I can't believe that they, they had 17 year old kids join this guy in a car to the bank across the street. And it wasn't far, but like, obviously he was carrying, but like, we yeah. didn't have any protection. I mean, anybody could have been just like monitored us and, and, and tracked what we were doing every night and just been there. And it would have been very easy for them to get the money back. I mean, like, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not even sure how quickly Chuck could have gotten his gun out because he was an old man. He wasn't very particularly fast. So, no you know, not saying yeah. that he wasn't experienced, but man, I don't think that you and I, in retrospect, probably should have been in that situation. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you never realize how, how stupid or crazy things seem when you're young, but yes, that should never have happened. We, we should never have been in that car with some old security guard who couldn't have defended himself, let alone us. I'm glad you survived. I'm glad you made it. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm none the worse for wear and I got a good story to tell. Oh, huh. It is my 21st birthday. Do you think perhaps just once I might use the bathroom by myself? 
Most amusing, sir. Wipers! So summer of 88, Dave, you know, the way it always worked is like Gary would come out whenever he got the bookings for the, you know, for the next week or two, he would come out and be like, hey, look, he, he'd fill up his, uh, his empty soda cup at the, at, the, at the candy stand and, you know, he'd get some root beer or whatever. And then he'd be like, hey, so, you know, we got the booking for this week. And you're like, oh, nice. What are, what are we getting? You know, so like that summer, and this is from memory. I didn't look this up, but I, I remember for a fact that that summer we had Crocodile Dundee 2, which was a piece of shit. We had um, Cocktail, which is, you know, say what you want about Cocktail, but I'm a big fan of that movie. It's terrible, but like I, I have a, I have a love for that movie. Funny Farm with Chevy Chase, which I mm. really actually I'm a big fan of. And we also had A Fish Called Wanda. I think that came maybe later that summer, if memory serves. But I remembered, you know, Gary comes out or maybe it was Glenn and he's like, you know, we've got uh, we've got the new Eddie Murphy movie coming. And we're like, wait, what? And it was coming to America and all of a sudden the poster's there and then he's putting the poster up in the case. And I would say like movies like coming to America, let's call it movies for a certain demographic, whether it be like an urban audience or an action audience, as I said earlier, or horror movie audience, movies like that usually played at the palace. That's just like, and I'm not saying it's right. It's definitely not right, but that's the way they sort of, they did it demographically in Danbury. Like the cine was more upscale and the palace was more down market. But for whatever reason, we got coming to America and you and I were thrilled. We're like, wait, the new Eddie Murphy movie is coming here. That's, that's awesome. It was released on June 29th, 1988. As I said earlier, it just celebrated its uh, 35th anniversary. But what the normal process was is that Gary and Glenn would screen it because obviously they would, they would put the reels together and, and screen the film before we opened it to the audience to make sure that, you know, the, the reels were proper and everything was fixed. Um, but they would screen it for us, right? So like the employees, if, if we were around, they would either do it late at night, like on that Thursday night before opening, they would run like a midnight screening for the, for the staff. And that's probably how we saw it coming to America, if I would guess, is that we saw it at like 1130 the night before um, because you and I would stay up till like all hours of the night back when we were 17 and 18. And uh, you and I, I I would say that we fell in love like on the spot. Absolutely. And and I remember, so you're right. We we had the employee sneak preview. So there was only 15, maybe 20 people. The the employees from the other theaters could come if they wanted as well. But you're talking no more than 15 or 20 people. And yeah, I think during the preview, you and I were howling and we were looking, we were looking around at everybody else like, why, why the fuck aren't you guys laughing? This is hilarious. So yes, we, we were in immediately. A, it was unexpected for us to even play the film. And then it was unexpected, like for us to just like laugh as hard as we were. Like it was just a, didn't really know much about it. This was, you know, pre-internet by a, by a lot, you know? So like back then in the late eighties, all you really had was like, you know, the local paper and you had like premier magazine. Like you just, there wasn't a lot of like information at your fingertips. It wasn't like this year long marketing machine where, you know, the studio was banging the drum on this Eddie Murphy movie and it's coming and you, you saw trailers and all this sort of stuff. Like it didn't work like that back then. The trailer dropped a couple of weeks before. Like if you're lucky, you saw a couple of TV spots, you know, if you were in front of your TV at the certain time of night. But so the movie sort of, I think maybe the movie just kind of snuck up on us. Right. And right. Um, directed by John Landis, who was a, a big time filmmaker in the, in the mid eighties, he directed blues brothers. He directed animal house. Um, he also directed um, Eddie Murphy in 1983's, Trading Places. Um, the movie debuted at number one with $29 million opening weekend gross. It went on to gross $128 million in the U.S., $289 million worldwide. I guess, you know, that $128 in the U.S., uh, that's, I looked it up, that's almost $300 million in today's box office. So just to give that some wow. 
some perspective. Wow. Yeah. Coming to America was a beast. That movie was a big yep. deal. That, and it's funny when I did the research for this episode, I remember it doing well. Like I remember it, you know, cause we worked there, we worked at the theater and I remember every weekend it was selling out for weeks and weeks. Right. But like, I don't remember at the time it being like the second highest grossing film of 1988, but that's what it was. So number one was who framed Roger Rabbit. As we mentioned earlier, coming to America was number two. And then the, the last three were uh, good morning, Vietnam, which opened at, at the Cine as well. But yeah, we very, very late 87. I think that was like a Christmas film or close to it. Cause I, I remember that playing like earlier part of that year, uh, big, as we said earlier, opened that summer, that was number four and number five was crocodile Dundee two, which is hard wow. to believe that that many people actually saw that sequel that sequel was pretty horrendous. But here's the thing that blew me away when I went back and revisited coming to America. As I said earlier, you know, you and I were at the age where we weren't really reading movie reviews like we probably do now. And like, I wasn't reading Variety and Hollywood Reporter like I do today. I work in the business now. Like, that's mandatory, right? But back then, that wasn't something I ever thought about. So Coming to America was actually a poorly reviewed film. It wasn't – they weren't bad reviews, but they certainly weren't good reviews. Sheila Benson of the LA Times, she called it a hollow and wearying Eddie Murphy fairy tale and bemoaned that an Eddie Murphy movie would come to this, meaning that it was it was that much of a fall off from what he had done previously, which obviously, you know, he had a great run there between 48 Hours, Trading Places, Beverly Hills Cop. Those are three big movies that are hard to top. So Coming to America came a couple of years after after those. But um, obviously, I think maybe expectations were so high that people were like, this movie suffers by comparison. But this is what The Hollywood Reporter said. Granted, it's a trade paper, but still widely read by the industry. Distressingly, the film flops into the blandest of sitcom formats, never realizing its regal potential. Except for the effervescent Murphy, this very common comedy doesn't have much more to strut than your average network rerun. Box office will undoubtedly be gargantuan at first, which they did get right, but Paramount's goldmine has been short-shafted by coming to America's dull-witted screenplay and some surprisingly close to the vest direction by John Landis. Dave. Yeah. You know what? I'm, I'm going to say, I personally don't give a rat's ass about reviews. I, I know you said you read them now and you have to. Dennis, I, I occasionally read them and, and I, I always have to catch myself and I, and I generally will stop reading a review because if the person giving the review does not have the same taste as me, yep. the review is irrelevant. Yeah, and right. I, I'll, I guess I'll give you a, an analogy. If, if somebody gave me a rap album, so I'm into music. I love music. I play guitar. If someone gave me a rap album and said, hey, Dave, review this album, I, I, my review would be, A, worthless, and B, it would, it would probably be, be followed by a bunch of angry fans of rap who are saying, this guy doesn't know what the F he's talking about. And you know what? They'd be right. I wouldn't know what I'm talking about. So unless the person giving the review is of, of similar mind and taste, yep. you don't know what you're getting. So I, I, the final thought on that, my current favorite movie is Horrible Bosses 2. Yes, the sequel. I love that movie, Dennis, like no other. Wow, I think I've even seen it like once. I've definitely seen it. Uh, Dennis, I, I, me and my my oldest son, I mean, talk about quoting a movie. But anyway, the reviews on that are like coming to America. They're they're middling at best, and I'm like, well, they're wrong. 
And I don't care what anybody else says. You cannot convince me that movie is is friggin' hilarious. So again, reviews are what they are, and I I, I dismiss them almost immediately. And one more note on that is like because again, like the public ended up getting it right on on coming to America anyway. But like I, with, when it comes to reviews. What I normally do is I'll like read like the opening paragraph, which isn't really much. Like you can, but you can get the flavor of whether or not you think it's sure. going to be positive or not. But like, so yeah. I just saw the new Mission Impossible over the weekend, which is incredible, by the way. Um, and I wait to see the reviews until after the fact. So like uh, once I saw Mission Impossible, yeah. then sometime yesterday I read Hollywood Reporter, I read Variety, mainly just because of like the, the film geek in me. I'm a little bit sure. curious to see kind of like what what their critic thought of it, right? And then I usually. Yeah compare it to what I thought of it and I'll see if we were similar or not. Right. Okay. And I just, I enjoy doing that after the fact, but like, that's when I will read stuff, but I usually don't try to read much in advance because I don't want to want to spoil it for myself. But Paramount pictures actually thought that this movie, I guess, based on the early press screenings that they did do the, the, the you know, the buzz wasn't great. So they actually right. canceled all the remaining press screenings for that film upon, you know, all the negative reactions that they had had. Now, I don't remember any of that when you and I saw this movie in, in 1988. I, I couldn't even tell you that the movie came in with that kind of like negative buzz surrounding it. Eddie Murphy was like the king of the world back then. So we never would have believed that. But as it turned out, CinemaScore, which is the which is the firm that does exit polls for people after they see movies and they come out and they, they ask people to give it a grade. Um, cinema score, the average film grade for coming to America got an A, meaning that most right. people that saw it that summer loved it. They gave it an A. So it just kind of goes to show you that the public was like, critics, man, you guys don't know what you're talking about. This movie is superb. The critics sort of maybe missed the boat on uh, Prince Akeem a little bit. Absolutely. And, and, and their criticisms, you know, may not be completely wrong. But I love that one review you read. It was like, well, except for except for the, the greatness of Eddie Murphy, what else does the movie have? Well, yeah, it's got the greatness of Eddie Murphy. That's the, the goddamn point. I know I don't want to go too much on a tangent on this because this will this will just take us down a, a serious path a little bit. But like back then, I do know enough about film to know that they were not studios were not making movies for black audiences back then. Not entirely like, not like you see today where a lot of movies come out today for that particular, you know, quadrant. And that's like the movie's designed for a certain audience and it's released that way. And movies can do really well that way today. And, and, and all that, but like back in 1987, 88, when coming to America was being filmed, like they, they just didn't make movies like that for that audience. And, even if you look at like what Eddie Murphy did in, in 48 Hours and Trading Places and Beverly Hills Cop, they were they were white movies. Like they were made by white filmmakers. They they paired him up with Nick Nolte or sure. Dan Aykroyd, right? So like it was really sort of fascinating that a major studio release like Coming to America was was released with a predominantly black audience. I think I read something that said that there was maybe three speaking parts played by four speaking parts played by I counted four, right? Is it four? (laughs) That's sort of unheard of. And I think maybe what would have happened there is, and I didn't know this is that Spike Lee, I guess this would have been maybe after Beverly Hills cop two came out or somewhere, somewhere around the golden child era, basically accused Eddie Murphy of not using his platform to make, you know, black films. So I want to read, um, this is what Spike Lee told jet magazine. If Eddie Murphy, who made a billion dollars for Paramount, went into their offices and said, I ain't making any more films until you hire some black people in your front office, they would have to do it. I hope he uses that clout rather than focus on who gets the best table at Spago's. I had no idea that that was out there in the world, that he was taking shots at Eddie. So this is what Eddie said in response. He didn't obviously like that. 
The company is called Paramount, not Eddie Murphy Productions, he told Rolling Stone. I can't walk into the studio's front offices and demand shit. So really interesting that they were sort of going at each other in the press. Now, if you do think about what happened in 88, even Spike Lee notices this because in in the introduction to his Do the Right Thing companion book, the following year when Do the Right Thing came out in 89, he actually acknowledged coming to America as a serious move by Eddie Murphy to do a film by and about black people. So some will say that coming to America was Eddie Murphy listening to the critics, listening to Spike Lee and probably others. And this was his response. I hear you. Here's your movie for an entire black audience. You and I never would have thought about that when we were 17 watching that movie. Nope, not at all. And, and it's funny you you mentioned that. And again, we won't go too far down this this line of, of conversation, but I'm not sure if it was Spike Lee, but I remember reading something years after about Michael Jordan where I think he was criticized. And I, I, I do want to say it was Spike Lee. I mean, they made the, uh, you know, the, the Nike commercials back in the mid eighties. So it could have been, but the criticism on Jordan was why he was not more of an activist, a la, you know, Muhammad Ali, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, et cetera. He's got this platform. He should be that, that next great voice. And Jordan's response was, Republicans buy sneakers too. His yeah. point was, I'm going to play it right down the middle. So, you know, that was a business decision Jordan made. And maybe it was the same thing with Eddie Murphy. It's, it's just interesting. It might have been Spike Lee who was criticizing both of these, I mean, monsters of, of their, of their industries. So, um, it, it's interesting. It, it's definitely, it's, it's an interesting thing that, yes, 17 year old, me and you, would have been completely oblivious to. But I think that's the the genius of this film and the, the comedy of this film is that it, it it transcended audience, right? Like, it, yeah, you can make the argument that that movie is an absolute black film, right? And a lot of the humor is 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 black related comedy. They're in Queens, and and we're going to get into a lot of these these little nuggets of this movie that make this movie sing. But at the same time, number two grossing movie of the year, obviously everybody came out regardless of skin color. I mean, that was just obvious. Like you all you all loved coming to America for different reasons, but at the end of the day, everybody. The commonality there was it was just great performances and, and you know by Arsenio and Eddie and and just great characters and and I and I do think Eddie Murphy did create a lot of opportunities. If you go back and watch you know Coming to America, I mean it's the very first appearance of Samuel L. Jackson that I recall seeing in a movie. He plays the guy that holds up McDowell's. Um, Eric LaSalle from ER, who who become you know really popular in ER, he plays um, Daryl. Cuba Gooding Jr. makes a cameo in, in one of the, yep. the barber chairs. I don't think he speaks, but he's in there. So these are like big time actors that became hugely popular for years. I mean, Sam Jackson's one of the greatest in the in the business, and they all got their start coming to America. Amazing, absolutely. And and to go further into Eddie's career, I'm pretty sure he gave Chappelle. His first shot, I think he gave Chris Rock his first shot. I mean, if not their first shot, he definitely had them in, in some of his films. So, again, was the criticism warranted and did Eddie listen to it? Maybe. It's, it's possible. You know, I, I, I've, I haven't heard Eddie speak to it one way or the other, but certainly, uh, you know, he, he's had some young up and coming people he's kind of taken under his wing and giving them their shot. So I totally agree with you. He released Harlem Nights a year later. And yep. that, again, a film that was primarily black audience. And then, yep. you know, a couple of years after that, he did Boomerang, which was a nice hit for Paramount in the early sure. 90s. And again, Martin Lawrence and a lot of other Halle Berry, a lot of folks that were just kind of up and coming at the time. 
Let's take a quick break and then we're going to get into um, a little bit more about the production and then what do we love about coming to America. Great. I got a special treat for you this evening. A young man that you all know is Joe the Policeman from the What's Going Down episode of That's My Mama. I want you to put your hands together and welcome him to the stage. Big round of applause for Jackson Heights' own Mr. Randy Watson, yes, Randy Watson. <laughs> that boy is good. Mm-hmm. Good and terrible. And Reverend Brown. Two years for the Reverend. This man's been my Reverend since I was a little boy, and I love him dearly. You're a very special man. Reverend Brown. Reverend Brown. It feels so lovely to be here tonight. What a beautiful art. Give yourselves a round of applause. You're so lovely. Everyone's so lovely. And, um, while you're in the clapping mood, I'd like to give a big round of applause to my band, Sexual Chocolate. Sexual Chocolate. They play so fine, don't you agree? I believe the children are our future. Thank you. Teach them well and let them lead the way. Show them all the beauty they possess inside. Dave, I love it when Randy Watson kisses Reverend Brown on the cheek. Um, and then they show the Reverend takes his handkerchief out and he like wipes his face as he's like walking, walking away from him. Little stuff like that, Dave, is just priceless in this movie. Before we dive into what we love about coming to America, I want to talk a little bit about the production because there was a lot of like, there's a lot of controversy surrounding this movie. And again, going back through the eyes of a 17 year old would never have known it, would never really noticed it until years later when you sort of go back and revisit something. But a couple of things. One is the film rushed to the finish line. And I had no idea about this, that that movie was only filmed six months before it came out. So again, mm-hmm. it came out at the end of June in, in Danbury, Connecticut. And you're talking about a movie that was only filming that January and February in New York. Um, you know, wow. talk, talk about a movie like rushing to meet its release date. I mean, those are like the films where like when the canister arrived at the, at the front doors at the Cine, I think that the film prints were probably still a little bit wet, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> so, but the big one was, is that Eddie Murphy and John Landis apparently hated each other. So you're, you're talking about the star and the producer because Eddie Murphy produced the film. So you've got the star and the producer and then a director who they actually have a history of because they worked in trading places, but apparently they hated each other so much that like the, the friction on the set was very obvious. I think they even tussled at one point. So this is what John Landis said about Eddie Murphy during Coming to America. The guy on Trading Places was young and full of energy and curious and funny and fresh and great. The guy on Coming to America was the pig of the world. But I still think he's wonderful in the movie. How do you feel about that? That the director says that about wow. the star, Dave? Isn't that crazy? Wow. that That's – I mean – you know, can two things be true at the same time? So, yes, when he had him on Trading Places, Eddie was probably, what, 23, 24? So, yes. Yeah. So he's the young guy getting the start, bright-eyed, you know, the amazement of Hollywood. So I totally get it. Well, fast forward five or six years, you're not dealing with a 24-year-old kid who's happy to be there. He is the biggest friggin' star in Hollywood. So – you know, for Landis to have expect what, what did he expect him to to bow to him? So again, I don't know all that went on, obviously, 
but that, that's that's a pretty scathing comment, man. Now, I mean, like based on the research that I've read, and I want to I want to read a couple of things about what how Eddie was acting on the set. And I do think there was some of it's probably warranted. I'm not saying that Landis needed to go after a star like that, but I do think that Eddie's behavior reportedly was very diva esque. And again, this is a guy that coming off of Beverly Hills Cop could basically do whatever he wanted. He got a multi-picture deal at Paramount Pictures, a producer deal. Like he was, to your point, between him and Stallone in, in the late 80s. I mean, Schwarzenegger's definitely coming in at this point. This is the same summer of Die Hard. And so Bruce Willis wasn't a star yet. He was about sure. to be. So like Eddie, Eddie was the guy. This is what Eddie Murphy said about John Landis. We had a tussling confrontation. We didn't come to blows. Personalities did not mesh. So he directed me in trading places when I was just starting out as a kid, to your point, but he was still treating me like a kid five years later during Coming to America, and I hired him to direct this movie. I was going to direct Coming to America myself, but I knew that Landis had just done three fucked up movies in a row. For those of you that don't know, John Landis directed one of the segments in the Twilight Zone movie, the one that actor Vic Morrow got killed during film production and that movie came out in 83. So John Landis was, had all kinds of legal trouble back in the mid eighties. I figured the guy was nice to me when I did trading places. So I'd give him a shot. I was going out of my way to help this guy and he fucked me over pretty terrible, right? Yeah. Murphy's weekly expenditures during production included $3,800 for his custom motorhome, $1,500 for his personal trainer, 650 for his valet, 5000 for a weekly living allowance. And apparently he once spent $235 at McDonald's for breakfast for his entourage. So. Wow. A, a star has an ego. I mean, wow. <laughs> First time ever in Hollywood. I can't, I can't believe it. So again, every, both things are probably true. Um, but at the end of the day, they made a great film. So. You know, I, as the viewing audience, I'm, I'm, it worked for me, man. I'm happy it worked out. The other big controversy about the movie, and then I promise we're going to get into what's so great about this movie, is the whole Art Buckwald versus Paramount Pictures civil suit. Do you remember reading about this, Dave? I guess we would have probably read about this a few years later. If I'm not mistaken, and I'm sure you'll correct me here, I think they did settle the lawsuit, and I think he, he they, they lost, didn't they? They had to pay him some civil damages. He did. Yeah. He filed suit in 1990 against the producers on the grounds that Coming to America was stolen from his 1982 script treatment about a rich African who comes to America for a state visit. Paramount had optioned this treatment from Art Buckwald, and John Landis was attached as director, and Eddie Murphy is the lead. But after two years of development, you know, it went through development hell and Paramount pulled a plug on that project. I guess this would have been in like 85. Two years later, Paramount begins working on Coming to America based on a story by Eddie Murphy. Art Buckwald's spider senses went off. To your point, uh, took him to court and he they ended up settling out of court. But he did win and he had a nice – I don't know how much he got paid. Wild. But, but Dennis, again, you could probably fill Dodger Stadium – with uh, all the people in Hollywood who have had something stolen from them. Yeah. No, that's <laughs> An true. idea, a concept, you know, you could fill Dodger Stadium, I bet. So, right, right. So you watched Coming to America a few days ago to prepare for this because you and I were texting each other. I watched it last week. How did you enjoy watching it through the eyes of someone in their early 50s as we are? But also on top of that, knowing that Eddie and Landis argued, knowing that it was a very problematic set, knowing that the storyline was essentially robbed. Do you feel like you looked at it through different eyes now because uh, you knew, you knew all that now going into it? Uh, no. And, and it's a fair question. Um, 
clearly I viewed it differently as a 50 plus year old aged person compared to a 17 year old kid. Um, and I'd also seen the movie a dozen times. So I'm not hearing the jokes for the first time, uh, but I still thoroughly enjoyed it. All of the, the, you know, the clubhouse fighting, if you will, didn't really interfere or diminish my enjoyment of the film one way or the other. I definitely didn't have that sort of feeling either, but I'm glad I didn't because I wasn't sure when I, I hadn't watched this movie in a really long time. So when I went back to watch it from beginning to end, um, I was curious to see if I was going to start going there. Like, oh, wow, this is like this guy and he stole this idea and he got sued and he lost. And I didn't go there. I just allowed myself to enjoy the movie for for what it is. I want to play a quick clip that you and I were big fans of. We're going to play... One of our favorite, I wouldn't even call him secondary characters, he's probably tertiary, is Oha, who's uh, Prince Akeem's you know, loyal assistant. She's your queen to be, a queen to be forever, a queen who'll do whatever his highness desires. She's your queen to be a vision of perfection, an object of affection to quench your royal fire completely free from infection to be used at your discretion. Completely free from infection to be used at your discretion. Dave, how hilarious is that? I mean, how many times do you think we sung She's Your Queen to to each other in high school? As a songwriter, Dennis, I can only aspire to come up with such brilliant lyrics, man. Remember like <laughs> remember like when we were the you know, we were we were ushering at that point in eighty eight. So like we'd be standing in the back of the theater with our little flashlights you know, pretending that we're working, but really watching coming to America. How many, remember like how funny it was when like people were in there watching it for the first time and Oha comes out and he sings that song at the, at the Royal engagement. And like, people were just like losing their shit. They were like laughing out loud. Right. I mean, almost like every time. And then I'd start laughing out loud because they were laughing out loud. Remember that? Dennis, it got to the point where we would go into the theater for certain scenes that we knew we loved and we couldn't wait to see the reaction of people seeing and hearing it for the first time. We laughed as hard at the people's reaction as we did the first time we saw it. It was just great. What is it? If you had to break it down, what is it about this movie that you love so much? Man, God, where, geez, where to begin? Um, well, first, Eddie Murphy. I, I mean, w- without question, he's the star. He's the attra- He's the draw. He's the attraction. Um, you know, you, you talked about it. He was coming off 48 hours trading places, Beverly Hills cop in back to back to back years. So he was amazing. He was the man, um, outside, you know, we talked about it. Who were the other stars? It was him, Stallone and Tom Cruise. Yeah, I mean, they right. were the biggest star and Tom Cruise is still going today. Holy Christ. But anyway, um, <laughs> just incredible. Uh, and maybe Harrison Ford, but Harrison Ford was more, the franchises that he was part of in star Wars and yep. Indy 
still a huge star, but people were going to see him in the vehicle that he was in. But anyway, the total side note. Um, but it's just, so Eddie was the draw and, and just a quick side story. Do you remember you had raw on VHS, the Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy raw. Sure. I had never seen it. So one night after work, you said, Dave, let's go back to my house. We're going to pop in raw. I said, Oh God. All right, man. So we go to your house now it's late. Cause it's after one of us closed. It's probably <laughs> midnight. We get to your your parents' house. It might even be like a Wednesday for all I remember. Probably was. And you pop this thing in and I am losing my shit. I'm just laughing my ass off. And and you're torn. You're conflicted like, Dave, I want you to enjoy. And I'm I'm enjoying you enjoying this. But shut the fuck up. You're going to wake my parents up. <laughs> Raji and my mom, like right above us, right upstairs. Right above. Uh, so anyway, sorry for the, for, the, for the side note there. But Eddie was clearly, I mean, he, he was the draw. Um, and so really when I think of coming to America, coming to America is, it's two things. It's a fish out of water story yep, and it's a romantic comedy. Yep. That's, and I don't want to say that's it, but the fish out of water is a common, you know, trope. That's, you know, nothing new. Hollywood's been using it forever. Um, but the interesting thing, the romantic comedy element was, was new, um, you know, the modern rom-com. So fine. It, it's a clearly, it's a big genre now. And it exploded in the early nineties. I look back and say, this is, this is ground zero for the modern rom-com. Yep. Some people might say it's when Harry met Sally that came out a year after. Year after that was 89. Yep. That was 89. So for, for me, this thing did usher in a whole new genre of movies. Um, which I'm sort of embarrassed to say that the reason I loved coming to America was because it was a rom-com. I hope I'm not saying that, but I agree yeah. with you. And I think if you go back to like what you said, the fish out of water thing, that was, you know, Eddie Murphy in 48 hours, he's paired up with Nick Nolte, right? Yep. He's this ex con he's with this cop and they go out for two nights. And then you've got trading places. Again, he plays Billy Ray Valentine, fish out of water, yep. lives the life of a rich man. Right. And then he's, he's Axel Foley, Detroit cop in Beverly Hills. You, you know, the formula, right? Excellent. What, what yep. I, and again, like, and I don't think Coming to America is really a buddy movie, although Ars- Arsenio Hall is, is obviously semi and it's his, his sidekick. But I think um, what I liked about Coming to America is that it was like Eddie in his like really big, like leading role. But like even just like the vibe of the movie, you know, with the, with the Paramount logo and, it, and it, the camera zooms over the Paramount logo and you've got that African music. And all of a sudden, like the, 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 they're like the camera is kind of hovering over the jungle as we get we get closer to the palace in Zamunda the music that's playing and, and like it, it puts you in this sort of like state of mind that his other movies haven't done. And, and I, for me, that simplicity, that almost like the fantastical element of this wealthy, you know, Royal family is not a side of Eddie Murphy. We had seen previously, right. You just mentioned Eddie Murphy raw. I definitely didn't see him in that. You didn't see him like this in the golden child and, and all the other movies that came before that. But this was like this very simple, very just a very basic premise this rich guy doesn't want to get married to this he doesn't want to have this forced wedding and he wants to go to america he wants to go to queens it's a very simple structure very economical movie it just moves along really really quickly not a lot takes place and i think that's what i love most about coming to america we're going to get into some of the other specifics in a second but like from a structural perspective the movie was very simple and easygoing unlike the things he had done previously yeah, no, that, that's a great uh, synopsis, Dennis, for sure. 
Um, but you hit on it. The open, just from the opening credits with Lady Smith, Black Mombazo doing, doing the, 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 the African music. Um, just brilliant and flying over the Paramount Mountain, as you say, floating down into the jungles of Zamunda to the palace. Yep. Um, it just great. I mean, you know, Lady Smith, Black Mombazo, they were coming off, you know, being on Graceland, the Paul Simon album. That's so right. it was just a great, uh, it was a brilliant choice to use those guys to do that, that opening song. I mean, it, it just, it all worked. That's why right from the jump, I was like, I'm in. He's in the bathroom and like and one of his servants is brushing his teeth for him. And then like he, he finishes that and then he's got the, he's got the mouthwash and the guy's rubbing his neck while he's gargling. Like that's funny shit. Really funny shit. Like I couldn't, like I hadn't seen that before in any sort of Eddie Murphy movie. Like what is this movie? Like I probably even said that to you when we, when we first saw it. I'm like, what, what's happening here? Who is this character? Why? This movie's hilarious. We got to talk about the Royal Bathers. You know, come on. Now I know I was 17 when it came out, but you know, let, let's go there. But all kidding aside, what was brilliant about that scene is as you you know, you talked about it, you know, the, the servant is gargling him and one servant's brushing his teeth and one servant's dabbing his mouth after he spits and he's got the 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 the, the royal wipers. He doesn't even wipe his own ass and he gets woken up by the the chamber music playing in the balcony. So you're 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 shown okay, the opulence, the wealth, right. you know, he doesn't have to do anything for himself. Then you, you forward into the bathing scene and you see the bathers are, are, they're just starting to dab him. And you're like, okay, I get it. Another imagery of the opulence and the servitude. Yep. And then you see the third bather emerge from the water. And I mean, <laughs> it, it takes it from this serene, tranquil setting to us, to a guy, to a sight gag. Sure. And Dennis, I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot. As that third bather emerges from the water, what does she say to Eddie? The royal penis is clean, your highness. <laughs> <laughs> and the best part, hold on. The best part is Eddie's face. As as she says that, he looks off, he looks off to the side and just gives a long just this this sigh of thank you i mean dennis come on i mean no, that shit it's, is it's it's superb i mean i actually i mean listen i love this whole movie and i there's parts of when they go to queens most of the movies in queens but yep. there's a lot of parts in queens that i absolutely adore but i yep. to, to your point like that first 15 minutes or so in zamunda um it just it just sort of takes you into this place it's very escapism it's just it's sure. again it's a side of this this kind of wealth that you can't even imagine. And he's walking with his dad outside and the little elephant walks by and it's, he's like, Oh, hello, Babar, you know, like little stuff like that. You know, the bathers, I mean, people freaking love that. But um, even like, you know, James Earl Jones as his father, just like plays that, that arrogant jerk King to yeah. the T like just what, a, I mean, you and I quoted King Jaffe Joffer all the time. All day long. Now I just, I got to ask you one question and we can move on to Queens. Are, are cassava melons a real thing? <laughs> <laughs> I've never looked it up. <laughs> oh, great stuff. Before we leave Zamunda, the other thing I noticed is the uh, the dance sequence, right? Which was obviously oh, famous because Paula Abdul choreographed that, which was well known at the time. She was a huge deal in the late 80s. But yep. when I watched it again the other day, that dance sequence plays for a really, really long time. Like, I mean, I think I, I think I actually clocked it. I think it's just around two minutes or so of screen time, which probably is it was interesting as it is to watch. And I'm sure it was very hard to to get all those dancers to do. Not sure we needed it for two minutes. What do you think? 
Oh my God, Dennis. It's so funny you say that. I had it on this past weekend in preparation for this. And I remember, oh yeah, the dancing. That's right. I, I remember this. Halfway through, I went, Jesus Christ, I didn't sign up for The Lion King Live on Broadway. What the hell's going on here? End this already. So way, way too long, but a minor nitpick, fine, a minute long. But it was impressive as hell. The choreography w- was excellent. Let's go to Queens. Obviously, Akeem, he decides he's not going to marry Amani. He doesn't want to marry her. He doesn't have a feeling for her. And he's going to secretly go to America to find his bride. You know, they decided they're going to go to L.A. or they're going to go to New York. They decide to go to Queens for obvious reasons. And uh, they go there. But like as soon as they arrive is when this movie gets to a whole other level of of creativity, which if you see it for the first time, you don't even know it's coming, which is the yeah. best part about it. But like and this obviously set forth a whole new template for Eddie Murphy and, and future movies where he plays multiple characters. Multiple right. Characters, yeah. I, I want to stop you before we get there, because, yes, clearly the multiple characters is brilliant. Yep. But even, even you know, as you said, the tertiary characters or, or the, the bit characters, when they arrive in Queens, we're introduced to Jake Steinfeld <laughs> as the cabbie. That's right. And, and, and if you remember, Prince Keem walks out in the middle of the road and he yells halt to the cab. Yep. Jake Steinfeld jumps out and says, you dumb fuck. <laughs> like, there, there is no better, perfect welcome to New York you know, greeting than that you dumb fuck yelled at you by a cabbie. It's just – and then they finally drive to Queens where they're going to live now for the duration of the movie. And if you remember, the cabbie pulls over and he looks back in the, to the back scene. He goes, is this shitty enough for you? I mean – and he's like, he's like, it's perfect. It's perfect. It's perfect. So that's when yep. we get introduced to what I think is the signature piece of this movie. And and again, again if you clock the, the amount of screen time that this movie takes place in the barbershop, the mighty sharp barbershop, not a lot of minutes. I mean, it's, there's only a couple of signature scenes and that's it. But like, to me, it's, it's like this movie just comes out of nowhere. This scene, this, these characters that he plays, he plays one of the barbers. Arsenio plays one of the barbers. And then Eddie's buddy, Clint Smith, plays um, Sweets, who's the other guy that's in there. And then Eddie plays the Jewish man, Saul, who's reading the, the racing forum on the guest chair. So there's four characters in there. But, I mean, Dave, to this day, like 35 years later, it's some of the funniest shit I've ever seen in a movie in this barbershop. And, Dennis, you almost can see in their faces while they're doing it. Obviously, you know, they're filming multiple takes. You can almost sense they're like – you know what? If we can pull this off in editing and post-production, if, if if we can pull off what we are trying to do, we've got gold here. And they did. I mean, they like, that was 35 years ago and they pulled that off, man. It was, it's it's brilliant. It, it, the thing is, like when you watch a movie like this back then, they didn't do this. Like you didn't see no. movies where the, uh, the main actor, a guy of, of the, the magnitude of Eddie Murphy, and obviously Arsenio was up and coming at this point, but that they're, they play multiple roles. And like they don't really like serve the story. It doesn't really move anything forward. It's just these secondary characters that they throw in for laughs. But the best part about it is that is Eddie and Arsenio, when they play their main characters, when they play Akeem and Semi, they're like the straight characters. They have funny bits. Don't get me wrong. They do. Right. Like when Eddie, Eddie's trying to mop the floor at McDowell's, there's, there's good comedy there. But like they let it rip when they are these yeah. other guys. And that's what's best about that movie. Like when Arsenio is playing Rever- Reverend Brown, I mean, like hysterical. Like that's like, I mean, I, I wonder, I would love to ask Eddie Murphy and like John Landis, was that 
planned from the script stage? Like when they wrote that screenplay, was that already in there? Or when they were like making this movie that they finally just wake up one day, like, you know what? We, we want to do this barbershop and we're going to have these guys start riffing and saying funny shit about boxing and, and whatever else. Like, I wonder how planned it was. That's a great observation on your part. And I never really thought about that where Akeem and Semi are, are, are buttoned up. They're, they're kind of straight laced guys. But their alter egos are these other characters where they get to just motherfucker all day long. And it's, it's just hilarious. You've got this juxtaposition of, of these dynamic characters. It, it, it just plays. It works so damn well. And they even like when they go to the nightclub, when they first get to Queens and they meet Arsenio Hall plays that one woman that's hitting on the two of them. And she's like, I'm into the group thing. <laughs> well, and, and the best part, her, her name in the credits. Played by Arsenio Hall, the character's name is Extremely Ugly Girl. So. Is that what they called her? <laughs> but I tell you, so real quick on, on the bar scene, if you think about it, that was sort of speed dating. You remember speed dating, I think, was a big thing in the late 90s, early 2000s. Dennis, this movie came out in 88, and they had basically a speed dating setup. And as I watched it again, it, it's funny, I'm sitting there like, God, why does... This feels so familiar. What the hell does this remind me of? Do you remember the 40-year-old virgin? Yep. With uh, with Steve Carell. That's uh, right. Do you remember that scene where they went to the speed dating? I'm like, holy shit. They, I, I, I don't know. I'm like, they've got that from coming to America. All right. So I'm going to put you on the spot. So Eddie Murphy plays Prince Akeem, obviously. He plays Randy Watson, who, who we just heard from, the lead singer of Sexual Chocolate. He plays Clarence, the owner of the Mighty Sharp Barbershop. And he plays Saul, the old Jewish guy in the barbershop chair. Then Arsenio plays Semi. He plays Reverend Brown. He plays Morris, the other guy, the other barber. And as he said, he plays the ugly woman hitting on Akeem and Semi. So of those two actors, name who's your favorite character? Man, that, that's a good question, Dennis. I'm going to have to say Clarence <laughs> just because. So uh, but, but Saul, uh, but, uh, man, that is a hard question. I'll say Clarence, but it, it, it's a close one, one A, one B, and one C, man. Yeah, Clarence is Clarence because Clarence. I probably have to agree with you on Clarence because he's so full of shit. Because everything that he says yeah. is basically like a lie, and you know he's talking about how he met Frank Sinatra and his Frank Sinatra sat at this chair, and we all know that that wasn't obviously ever happened, and and, and obviously Clint Smith calls him out on that every time he's 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 giving his bullshit out. What about Arsenio? Like, who's your favorite? I got to go with Reverend Brown. Yep, Reverend Brown for sure. I want you and that young man to tie that knot. I'm going to pray for you. And I want you to hold on to God's unchanging hand because he helped Joshua fight the battle of Jericho. Yes. He helped Daniel get out the lion's den. He helped Gilligan get off the island. Lord. I remember the way they did the end credits for Coming to America is they showed all the characters and they show the actors that name that played the character, right? So they showed, you know, James Earl Jones. They showed John Amos, who's amazing as Cleo, by the way. But they showed the um, the barbershop guys, right? So that they showed Eddie Murphy played Clarence. They showed Arsenio Hall and so forth. And then they showed Saul, the, the old guy, the old white guy. And then they showed Eddie Murphy's name underneath it. Yeah. And I remember like that summer when we were standing there, like people in the theater, their heads were exploding. They had no idea that Eddie Murphy played the old Jewish guy. I think like yep. some people figured it out, obviously, but a lot of people didn't know it until the credits told them. Absolutely right. Yeah. No, no. Most people had no clue. 
No clue at all. The other big thing that I loved about this movie, and again, you just don't see this very often. It just gets back to the, the screenwriting and Eddie Murphy's sense of humor and Arsenio is this. They created this universe inside this movie, which is just like very unique to coming to America, right? You've got, you're wearing the McDowell's t-shirt right now, right? You walk down the street, people know what that is. They know McDowell's. I mean, if they don't know it, shame on them. They should know it. Soul Glow, you know, you referenced, we played the music earlier, you on the guitar, like Soul Glow is such a, like a, a tertiary plot point, right? It's, it's Daryl. He's wealthy Daryl. It's his family's business. He's inherited it. It's they, they make the, the Jerry curl spray for people. And like, it doesn't serve the movie forward. It doesn't really, it's not really needed, but like, it's this extra element of black humor, which we go back to what we said earlier. That's just hilarious. So much so that they create a soul glow theme song and they play it a couple of times in the movie, which is even like fun. Right. And then like, you know, Randy Watson's band, sexual chocolate. Right. And then, you know, when they introduce Randy Watson and, and Reverend Brown's like, He's he plays Joe the policeman. The what's going down episode of That's My Mama. Like, That's my mama. This like the fact that they came up with a TV show called That's My Mama, which doesn't even isn't even needed in this movie. Yet they put that in there. Obviously, Mighty Sharp, the, the, you know, the barbershop, all that stuff. Like that's all like that's like just rich, rich comedy in this movie. And I think if you take that stuff out, Dave, I'm not sure if this movie is as good without it. No, it, 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 it's it's a forgotten movie. That, you know, we're not spending an hour and a half talking about. Um, I do want to touch on something real quick. Yeah. The Randy Watson character. Tell me that's not a total send up of Prince. It's got to be, right? I mean, if you think about it, if you, you know, I'm sure you're, uh, you've seen the Chappelle show episode where Charlie Murphy is talking about the time where him and Eddie played basketball against Prince. Yep. A, a friggin' hilarious skit, by the way. But he has to be parroting Prince, right? I mean, it, it, it's it maybe everyone's like, yeah, no shit, dumbass. <laughs> but it has to be. I, I always went there, and I always thought maybe it was like a little bit of Rick James that they were trying to well, trying sure. to channel yeah. there with the, with the hair and just like the the, the, you know, the light blue tuxedo and just every, everything about. Oh man, I, that whole Randy Watson stuff is is. I mean, people still reference sexual chocolate today. If you say sexual chocolate to somebody. They invariably know that you're talking about coming to America. I'm amazed that McDonald's went along with that. So I, I did the research on this is that I, apparently they were like totally on board with being, you know, made fun of in this movie. Um, so much so that obviously it was, it was clearly ripping off McDonald's. The only note they gave to the studio was that the scene where Samuel L. Jackson holds up the place. Um, there's a scene where, you know, they're putting the money in the bag. They didn't have their logo they wouldn't let them have like the the McDowell's logo on the bag. So that was the only note that McDonald's gave this movie of all the stuff that they had in that movie. That was it. Amazing. Wow. Well, I tell you, so now let's let's talk on Samuel real quick. When I saw that scene initially, and then when I saw it again just this past weekend, that scene is 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 so jarring to me. And 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 out of place is not is not the right description, but for such a lighthearted movie, Samuel L. Jackson comes in. And if you remember his line, anybody move, I'll blow your fucking out. I mean, he says it with such ferocity yep. that I remember I'm like, holy shit. Like what, what a, what a, what a deep disturbing kind of robbery. It's not just, Hey, give me your money. And that, <laughs> right. I mean, it's a violent, threatening character. And I almost think Dennis Samuel 
went into that saying, I'm getting 15 seconds of screen time. And this is my Hollywood audition. I'm putting it on film. This is who, this is the actor I am. I'm not just going to come and say, Hey, put the money in a bag. And if you remember, he turns around, he turns, he whips around and he go, when Eddie approaches him, no, who the fuck is this asshole? I mean, just. He even yells at that little kid. He's like, what are you looking at, buddy? What are you looking at, buddy? (laughs) But I'm telling you, it was such a jarring scene, but man, my hat is off to Samuel L. Jackson because I think he honestly, he said, I've got this 15 seconds, man, and I'm jumping on it. Well, he clearly got um, Spike Lee's attention because we, we talked about yep. Spike earlier because a year later, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of uh, Do the Right Thing, which came out in 89. And he plays uh, Senior Love Daddy, the, the DJ that sort of is like the framing device of that of that movie. And um, that's Samuel L. Jackson. So, And he's he showed up in a lot of other films after that and had an, an unbelievable career. So um, I think this might have been his first featured film role. I don't, I'd have to go back and look if Samuel L. Jackson had been in anything prior to coming to America, but I do know that it was it was considered one of the very first things he had ever done. I didn't really notice about John Landis, but he likes to break the fourth wall. Um, and he does it several times in this movie where the actors will actually turn to the camera and look at you as the audience and kind of break, again, break, break the wall down. He did it in Trading Places, which Landis directed. So that scene when the Duke brothers are trying to explain what they do at the Duke brothers to, to Billy Ray Valentine when Eddie Murphy became wealthy and they're expl- explaining commodities trading and all that. And he's like, pork bellies, William, which you could find in bacon, which you could find in a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. And then Eddie just looks over at the camera. He just looks at you for like a second. Fucking great. Just great, yeah. right? That I think that was the only time they broke the wall in trading places. But they do it a bunch of times um, in, in coming to America. And I didn't notice it until I watched it again recently, how many times they do it. I think they do it like three or four times where somebody looks yeah. at the camera. And it's just like- You know, with Daryl, when he's got the wet clothes on and the young sister says, hey, we got to get you out of these wet clothes after Lisa broke with him. He right. looks at the camera. Uh, there was- Three or four other times they did it. Oh, absolutely. Talk to me about the Duke brothers. Speaking of the Duke brothers and trading places, they- uh... Yeah, no, so that was a great scene. So, you know, obviously we're going to assume everybody knows about trading places and how the Duke brothers were ultimately (laughs) financially ruined in that movie. And so here you go. You've got the director and star of trading places now in Coming to America, and they throw in a little Easter egg for all of us trading places fans- when Eddie decides he's taking Semi's money away, his pocket change, so he can do no more, so he can cause no more trouble, and he hands a, the the bag of the wad of cash over to a homeless guy sleeping in, you know, uh, under the Brooklyn Bridge or wherever the heck they were, and of course it was it was the Duke brothers, Randolph and Mortimer. Randolph. Oh man, and and Dennis, <laughs> the best part of that was you and I would go into the back of the theater. And we would make sure everybody knew what that scene was. Oh my God, it's the Duke brothers from Trading Places. And we'd acted like we were in the crowd and just discovering it. Oh, it was hilarious. Just, just to throw it out there to make sure they all got it, right? Just make I, I sure mean, they like, got it. I still like when I remember like when they, I first saw it, I, I think I probably turned you was like, did that just freaking happen? Was that the Duke brother? Was that Randolph and Mortimer? And they literally just broke format and they just brought another they just blended two universes together unbelievable and I, so i found out that john landis did not want to do that um but i guess it was one of the writers that suggested that they do it and eddie fell in love with it eddie loved it eddie was like oh we're definitely doing it and landis had to be convinced again apparently if if, if landis liked something eddie did not like something <laughs> and, and and vice versa but what am i missing from coming to america is there anything that's on your on your list of stuff that just makes you happy about it 
Well, uh, one thing that we didn't talk about, one of the other bit characters, Frankie Faison, the oh, uh, the landlord. The landlord, sure. I mean, this goddamn guy crushed it, Dennis. I mean, if you remember, they first get the Queens, they knock on the apartment building door. He opens the door. Yeah, now what the fuck do you want? I mean, <laughs> you're like, holy shit, who's this goddamn guy? Hey, Stu, your rent's due, motherfucker. <laughs> I mean, that guy, he was so fucking angry, Dennis. He was just mad at the world. He shows him the apartment. He's ripping down the police tape, you know, the crime scene tape. Yep. Hey, here's here's the place I was telling you about. It's real fucked up. I mean, <laughs> you surrendered to a blind man. Oh, oh, and that was the other thing. If you remember the 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 the, uh, the body outline tape or chalk of the blind man, the the seeing eye dog and the cane. Damn shame what they did to that dog. <laughs> That's that terrible, dog, man. Oh, it's just hilarious. We didn't talk about John Amos. I referenced him for a second earlier as Cleo McDowell. What a what an amazing performance. I mean, John Amos at that point had done Good Times, very well-known actor in TV, but like yep. Cleo McDowell, I can't even think of any other actor that could have played Cleo McDowell the way John Amos did. Just, I, I, I can't see anybody in that role after seeing him for sure. You got that right. When he, when he finally finds out that Akeem is, is the prince, right. And he's obviously now really, really excited because he wants Lisa, his daughter to marry him. Um, and like, he's trying to get them back at the house and he knows that the king is in New York and he's, he, he tells the king to come over and like, he's got Akeem and his daughter in the house and he's like making hors d'oeuvres. Right. And then Daryl shows up cause he told, he told Daryl to show up and, uh, Daryl keeps knocking on the door and he keeps going to the front door and he keeps slamming the door. Right. Remember like the third time that Cleo goes to the front door and he chips on those steps. <laughs> yep. I don't even know why that's Absolutely. so funny to me. It's just like this little pratfall. It doesn't really mean anything, but like it's like the third time that he runs up to the steps and he falls down. Man, that's just some funny shit. And I laughed again the other night when I watched it and he fell down again. I don't know why. I absolutely did too. Uh, there's no doubt about it because it just showed his his anger and his frustration. He just, get the fuck out of here, would you please? You're going to screw everything up. And so, no, you, you you felt his frustration in that scene. It was just Lisa, he's got his own money. <laughs> 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 just brilliant stuff, man. So now, Dennis, I know we're going to wrap it up soon. I want, can I give you a couple of quick trivia questions for you? And then the audience can Ooh. certainly play along. You ready? Yep. I'm, I'm ready. I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. McDonald's has the Big Mac. McDowell's had the Big Mick. Yep. There was one difference between the two burgers. What was the difference? They didn't have special sauce. Am I no. right? Oh no 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 no! Wait wait wait! I'm going to take that back. I'm going to take that back. We we didn't. I I withdraw my answer before I got corrected. It was we didn't have sesame seeds in our buns, right? The Big Mac has sesame seed buns. We have no seeds. Correct. Very good. You got it. All right, man. I almost embarrassed myself. Jeez, I'm glad I got that one nah, right. What else? All right, they're going to get a little harder. Okay. If you're Eddie or Akeem sent Lisa as a secret admirer some very expensive earrings. Do you remember how much those earrings cost? I want to say somebody said that they were $500,000. Oh, excellent. Very good. Yes, yeah, Sammy said it. And then you can tell Lisa, you sent her the $500,000 earrings. And yes, very good. And those All are right. the ones that he ended up giving to the little lady on the subway, right? If you're really a prince, I'll marry you. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. Good job. <laughs> All right. Third trivia question, buddy. Lisa asked Akeem what he did back in Zamunda, and he said he was in the family business. What did he say that occupation was? 
Uh, he was a goat herder, correct? Very good. Come on. Maybe these were too easy for you. Yep, you got them. I know this stuff, man. I, you, give me one. Do you have any others? Give me one more. Uh, well, a tidbit, I'll ask it in the form of a, a trivia question. Stu, the drunk guy who fell down the stairs. Hey, Stu, your rent's due, motherfucker. Yep. Do you know who that actor was? Who played Stu? I do. And his name is escaping me right now, but he's, he's very famous. He's been in a ton of movies. He's a famous person. And I cannot, for the life of me, think of what his name is right now. Who is it? No, it's not. It's not a famous person. Really? I thought it was. It's Eddie's uncle, Uncle Ray Murphy. (laughs) I had no idea of that. Seriously? Uncle Ray Murphy. Yep. Wow. Eddie threw his uncle in the movie. And I think he was in 48 Hours and Beverly Hills Cop as well. A couple of things I want to leave us with. One is... And I really don't want to talk about the sequel, Dave. I, I, I'm not sure. I probably should have like reached out to you a couple of years ago when when the sequel coming to America came out and Amazon put it out. Um, I hated it. So I don't I don't know how you feel about it. I don't think we ever talked about it. Did you like it? I I can't say I liked it. I watched it, and at the end of it, I was like, yeah, okay, that was two hours of my life. I won't get back, but. You know, it it wasn't a dentist appointment. So, you know, I I didn't hate it as much as you, but will I ever watch it again? And can I tell you anything about it? No. But I think what I was thinking about is Eddie's legacy, right? This notion of like, we talked about his earlier movies, great, great run in the early mid eighties. I find that coming to America was his last great film. Now, which is not to say that he hasn't done good movies since then. The Nutty professor comes to mind. That was really popular in the, in the late nineties. Um, he did, um, Bowfinger with Steve Martin, which was a, a mild hit if memory serves, but I sort of felt like what I love about coming to America, it's a little bit bittersweet is that it was a, a really good movie, but it was the last really good, great film that Eddie did. Cause if you look at his IMDB after this movie and I wrote of them, a couple of them down, you know, I mentioned Harlem nights earlier, which he directed, which wasn't very good. Harlem nights is fine. There's some, there's some funny pieces to it, but not a great movie. Another 48 hours was a bad sequel. He did boomerang, which was, was pretty, pretty good. Distinguished gentleman, Beverly Hills cop three vampire in Brooklyn. I mean, he goes on this run in the early mid nineties of not, not very good films. I mean, obviously he does Shrek, does the voice and the donkey and you know nutty professor was a big hit but like don't you feel like coming to america was sort of like marking the end of an era 100 yeah, I, I the only one you left out was uh dolomite is my name that oh, that's was right. mildly entertaining that was about four years ago maybe give or take so that was entertaining and I, I i enjoyed it i'll probably never watch it again but but yes coming to america was definitely the career line of demarcation for eddie and of course, we didn't know it at the time, but but clearly, I I think it's it's obvious. History shows that. Yeah, and he even I think he was even nominated for an Oscar for Dreamgirls, which um, was yeah. a great performance. But again, like and and again, like I see him come. He, he does interviews from time to time. I know he's a, kind of a private guy, but um, yep. super talented. Like again, like and I'll take those early '80s movies. I mean, if you if you have to take that as your legacy between Forty Eight Hours, Trading Places, sure. Beverly Hills Cop, and Coming to America is like the big four. God, I mean, that is a that is a set of films that I, I would take with me. So I, I, I guess like what I want to leave you with is my high school yearbook quote for senior year. So we would have had to have done our our senior year photos. Right. We would have had to have done those. And I guess September of 
of 88. You and I graduated in 89. So we're coming off of the summer of coming to America, which was obviously in our blood at the time. My high school yearbook quote was from Frederick Nietzsche. It was, no journey is too great when one finds what he seeks, which is what he says to Lisa. And like, you know, he's, this is what she really loved about him is that he's, this is like this guy that's quoting philosophy, right? That quote spoke to me so much though, that I actually use that as my, my high school yearbook quote. And if anything, I've also even like sort of tried to live my life that way in my career. I wanted to work in film marketing. You knew that about me when I was young. I, I, I was really into yeah. movies. And, and when I got to college, I was like, I'm going to do this as, as gargantuan as a, as a, at the time, an industry would have been for me to even consider working in that field. That was what I wanted to do. And I sort of used that quote as like my, my life mantra back then. So to be, to be able to come back here tonight to, to revisit this movie with you, it shows you how important this film was for me. And you, you know, you were my, one of my best friends at the time. And like, we had this shared experience. Like it's my long way of saying this was a really special movie for me at 17 years old. It's still special for me. And it was an absolute privilege to be able to talk to you about this tonight. Uh, Dennis, the privilege and pleasure was all mine, man. I just, you allowed me to, to transport myself back to my 17 year old self. And, uh, I was watching it the other day and I really, I felt myself back at the Sene circa 1988. So I appreciate you given me that, that gift, that journey back to my youth. It was, it was great. I think about my past quite a bit. I'm one of those people that sort of does that. And I think we all have different phases of our lives, right? Obviously. And we're at, we're at a certain phase now, but like I go back in, in that time at the Cine and I think I speak on behalf of a lot of the folks that followed us, whether it be Kaz or Chad, as you mentioned earlier, and, and, and Jason Wilder and a lot of the guys like Steve Bouse, a lot of them come to mind that came to us right after that. And I think we all had this moment in time. I mean, back, back in Bethel and Danbury, you either worked at Bethel Food, which a lot of people worked at, um, a lot of people worked at Stop and Shop, and a lot of people worked at the Cine, right? And you and I were at sort of the earliest part of that Cine run that lasted a good five or six years working with Gary and Glenn. And I mean, just like simple times, but really... Probably the greatest job I think I've ever had. I mean, Burgess was right. Going back to Burgess, man, he nailed it. <laughs> he sure did, man. So do you remember when Coming to America got released on VHS? I do. Okay. So back in the day, for, for those in the audience who don't understand what I'm talking about, you actually used to have to leave your house, go to a video rental store. In this case, Stop and Shop, the grocery store had a video department. Yep. And you could rent the tape and you'd bring home this physical thing and you'd stick it in a what was something called a VCR and you could watch the movie. <laughs> and this would happen like a year after the movie was in the theater, you could maybe then it was released for home viewing. Sure. So you and I were so excited for the home release. Like, holy shit, we haven't seen Coming to America for a year. We're going to get this tape. We're going to watch it tonight, Dennis. We're going to watch it. It got released, I think, on a Tuesday. You and I both somehow convinced our moms to write us a note to get out of school early. We were in calculus <laughs> class. Mr. Proline, is this coming back? I don't remember this. I don't remember this, but I believe okay. it. I believe it. Dennis, so we got a note to leave school early. At one o'clock, we look at each other. We both get up. We leave calculus, which by the way, I had no right being in that class. I was going to get a C no matter what. So missing a day was no big deal. But anyway- <laughs> We're driving down to Stop and Shop. We are so excited. Holy shit, we're going to finally see this movie. It's been a year. And we pull into Stop and Shop. And we go racing in there. And we're like, okay, uh, coming to America? And the worker looks at us and goes, 
are you guys talking about? That don't come out till tomorrow. We were so wow. crestfallen. What? <laughs> we had the wrong day. <laughs> Man, I, I actually, oh. now that you say that, that's, that's coming back to me that you and I left school early. Cosolino and I did that for Die Hard where we, I don't remember leaving school early, but I do remember he and I staking out Stop and Shop to get the UPS truck because we wanted to be the first people to get the uh, the VHS for Die Hard. But it sounded like you and I did the same thing for Coming to America, but we got jammed up. This was a blast, man. Again, I, I, I'm so glad you came on. I've been waiting for this episode for quite a long time. And thanks for, thanks for going back and uh, reliving some, some really fun memories. Um, really excited about my next episode, everybody. My good friend, Rob Bone, this guy talked, he's a buddy of mine from Atlanta. This guy has been dying to get on this show. He's been bugging me for months. So I'm finally giving him his big chance. He and I are revisiting the 1989 Patrick Sweezy masterpiece Roadhouse. Dave, I think Roadhouse also played at the Cine in the summer of 89. And I don't recall why that movie would ever have played at our theater. That was not a Cine movie. That was a Danbury Palace thousand percent for some reason we got it at the cine um there's so much great things about that movie it's terrible in all the right ways we were actually referenced it in our last episode about good bad movies but in my opinion roadhouse deserves an entire podcast so rob bone no pressure my friend um some of you guys actually send me notes after you uh listen to an episode and i really appreciate you take the time to do that they always put a smile on my face Seriously, it, mean, it means a lot to me. It means that I, you, know, you, you enjoy the show. I enjoy doing it. It's my privilege to do it, so I'll keep doing it. Dave, it's been a blast. You're a phenomenal guest. We need to talk about the, uh, the official theme song, so let's, let's, uh, let's get into that. I'm really intrigued. Absolutely. I'll be in touch. And Dennis, if you ever do a Back to the Future episode, please, man, I hope I'm your guy because if you remember, we went and saw that trilogy back to back to back. So, so I want to say that you and I did that the summer, May of 1990 when the third one came out, right? Yep. Thank you so much for tonight. I really appreciate your time and I hope you had as much fun as I did. Absolute blast, buddy. Thanks for having me, pal. Can you make my hair look like this? Oh, man, what you want to make your hair look like that for? Well, I like the way you wear your hair. Wear it natural. That's good, man. You know, I wish more of the young children today would wear their hair natural like Dr. Martin Luther King did. That's right. You ain't never seen Dr. Martin Luther King with no Mr. Jerry Curl on his head. Ain't that right? Amen. Dr. King ain't come walk around like that. You know, sweet, I met Dr. Martin Luther King once. And you lying. You ain't never met Dr. Martin Luther King. Yeah, I met Dr. Martin Luther King in 1962 in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm walking down the street, minding my own business, just walking off, feeling good. I walk around the corner, man woke up, hit me in my chest, right? I fall on the ground, right? And I look up at Dr. Martin Luther King. I said, Dr. King. He said, oops, I thought you were somebody else. Oh, man, you lying. You ain't never met Martin Luther King. Knocked the wind out of me. Yes, it did. No, it didn't. Yes, he did. No, he did not.